Hello, everyone. It is time for our favorite time of the bye week, I guess. It doesn't quite work when I put it that way. But you are here for another episode of Certified Forgotten. I am one half of your hosts, the notorious film critic Matthew Monagle. The other half of your hosts is the notorious film critic Matt Donato. Say hi, Matt. Hi, Matt. Well, no, hi, people. Matt, I don't know. How's your week? Everything going well? I'm moving. Everything's chaos. I don't don't know what I'm doing right now. Will you have been moved by the time people listen to this? Um, yeah, depending on when we put this out. I don't know. The, the future is weird, and I don't know when we post our episodes. We're just recording things at this point, so. Totally I'm going to say yes, so just assume I'll be in L.A. Send happy thoughts to Donato one way or the other. It's, you know, he's, he's going through a major life change. Um, but we, it's not just the two of us. It's never just the two of us. We also have an awesome guest. Matt, can you do the introductions for us, please? Yes, with us on this episode, we have Melissa Kay, who you may know as a game developer or as a horror aficionado on Twitter, or as the Jeffrey Combs aficionado on Twitter, <laughs> which plays in nicely to our movie today. So, Melissa, would you like to say hi to the people? Hi to the people. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks so for having Melissa, me. Oh, yeah, of course. So happy to have you on board. And uh, we're going to start with the questions that we ask all of our guests. So, um, you know, sort of the first one that we typically talk about is how you got started as a horror fan. And, and particularly for, for this, you know, a lot of times the way that I always think of it is people get introduced to horror movies because somebody shows them a horror film. But it's really when they start to discover stuff on their own that that like their love of the genre takes root. So where what were the you know, when did you realize that you were like, oh, I'm no longer watching horror movies. I'm now I'm finding stuff and I'm a real horror fan. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I did grow up surrounded by horror movies because my mom's a really big horror aficionado. So that's definitely where I got it from. And she was always playing movies like, you know, all the classics um, growing up, but she never let me, you know, go to a video store and just like pick something out that looked really creepy or weird on my own until, I don't know, maybe I was like... I think like 10 or 11 and I was at a friend's house and they had um a copy of it and it looked you know it looked very creepy and so I was like we need to watch this it looks really scary and they're like no we're not supposed to it's for my older brother but I was just obsessed with having to watch it so we ended up watching it and you know everyone else was like really freaked out but I was clearly very obsessed and then from then on, every time I went to the video store with my dad, we like I would always go to the horror section and try to find something like that would look really weird or cool. And I remember my very first one that wasn't influenced by anyone was Night of the Creeps. So I would say that that definitely jump started my love of finding it on my own. And I still remember that cover and I still have it. That is such a special movie to kind of start on. And I'm curious if that put you on a path towards more comedic horror or was that just an intro point to all kinds of horror? Um, It definitely was an intro point to all kinds of horror, but I do hold a special spot for the over the top kind of comedic horror. Like from there, it was just like Evil Dead 2, you know? And, um, but yeah, I definitely jumpstarted that because I mean, it's a very special film as you know. <laughs> oh, I, I love Night. Yeah, no, I love that so, so much. Yes. So in those early days, then, when you were kind of falling in love with the genre and you were, you know, pulling anything off the VHS rack, I'm, I'm always curious, like, what was what was your judge a book by its cover thing? Like, what criteria did oh. he have where you were like, 
that VHS cover, but not that VHS cover. What, what stood out to you? What made you pick something up? Honestly, I was really into bright colors. So something that had like a lot of really fun colors or that kind of, you know, had hot looking people. I won't lie. <laughs> so <laughs> I mean, you know, you see like a really cool, you know, scantily cad woman in like a horror film cover and you're like, that that looks badass. This is scary, but there's a hot babe, you know, or a hot guy and like I'm not gonna lie, when I saw the Night of the Creeps cover, I was like, this guy's in a really nice suit, but he looks dead and I'm into it. And that was the start so. of many a fantasy for Melissa. <laughs> exactly. Explains everything. <laughs> hey Matt, you know what other cover has really bright colors? Demon Wind. Uh, oh God. It does. <laughs> And street trash. Oh See, my now gosh, I def- now trash. I definitely have to have this episode air after the Demon Wind episode because otherwise people would be like, "What's this callback to?" <laughs> my bad. I'll try to make our callbacks more ambiguous. No, Is no, you're great. No. You're <laughs> great. I love it. Um, yeah, I, I feel like I did VHS covers wrong then because the stuff that I would pick up is like Evil Dead Two and Castle Freak. I was just like, "Ooh, a weird mm. face on the box. I think I'll watch that." And then I was like, "Oh, there's no nudity or sexy people whatsoever. I've made a huge mistake." <laughs> I mean, there's some nudity in Castle Freak, like a lot, actually. Yeah, good, I suppose that's true. The wrong memory, kind, man. though. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> See, and then I just avoided horror as a child through the blockbuster section, and I would just avoid it and run away from it. So that is where I am coming from as a child. <laughs> <laughs> Were you scared of it? Absolutely. I was terrified. I was so afraid of horror, and I, I you know, I might have said this on earlier episodes, too, but... The early years for Matt Donato were very anxious and very avoid anything that could be scary and maybe weird. And I don't know. I don't like the lights off at night. Well, I get you. I want to ask about kind of like that fear boundary, too, because um, I am about to see it's in two days or actually about 24 hours by my watch. um, I'm about to see audition for the first time on the big screen. And there's there's three movies. There's really only three movies that I've ever avoided as a horror fan because I was like, I feel like this might be too much. One of them is Audition. One of them is Texas Chainsaw, which I've now finally seen. Um, and then the other one is Martyrs, uh, which I will mm. will never see unless forced to. So <laughs> were there ever were there ever movies, you know, as you were kind of being like, oh, this genre is awesome. I love all this stuff that you were like, not, but not that one. But the, like, that's a bridge too far. Yeah. I mean, I'll pretty much see everything and anything because I don't get scared anymore. I mean, I think I did when I was younger. But um like the human centipedes i'm just not into it's just doesn't do anything for me and you shouldn't be that's fine those can be ignored (laughs) yeah so i guess like that i would say you know more than anything or something that just yeah mainly that type wait did we just find the limits of matinato's like trashy midnight love is it is it human centipede no i i've seen every human centipede don't get me wrong they're just one the first one at least had some artistic merit to it. And it's like, okay, you're going for the shock value. And then two and three just go. Two was trying to be like an auteur kind of thing that literally the only color was brown as people shit. And then. No, yeah. not into it. Uh uh-uh. uh. Th- I don't like shit. Three was basically like the, we're going to be really exploitation y this time and cast some porn stars. And we're going to do. No, absolute garbage. But <laughs> I will say, I will throw my hat in the ring and will say. I'm still not keen on spider-based horror. I will admit that not the biggest fan of spiders. I can watch them. I, mm. I've seen my eight-legged freaks, and I'm okay with that. But I will 100% admit that I still have not seen Arachnophobia. Because <gasps> wow. that, as a horror comedy fan, 
I know that's like sacrilege, but I was walking <laughs> through like the WB backlot tours when I was like a little kid and they had the giant spider just hanging from one of the warehouses. And I was like, yep, no, that's all I need to see that movie. Nope. I don't need to see any more of that. So maybe someday I will, you know, see my arachnophobia and conquer that kind of battle that arachnophobia. Yep. Well, I was, yes, that actual phobia, but um, no conquer the battle of that film because, you know, for a while I didn't watch Chucky. I hated that kind of imagery and now it's my favorite slasher. So maybe I'm doing myself a disservice. And again, I say that as someone who loves eight legged freaks and uh, big ass spider and all these other ra- random spider movies, but those the CGI is just okay, we'll say. And like the new trailer for Itsy Bitsy, that new giant spider in a mansion movie. Nope, still haven't watched. Oh, yeah. Still haven't watched it. <laughs> well, I'll tell you what. Here's the deal, then, Donato. I will watch Arachnophobia with you if you watch Martyrs with me, and that way we can both knock out Oof. each other's big. It's it's a weird double feature, but I think it might work. If anyone big, can make it work, yeah. it, it's us. By the, by the power of mats. It's true. It's true. <laughs> Uh, so Melissa, tie this back a little bit to our theme. You know, one of the things about Certified Forgotten is this idea that, you know, because Rotten Tomatoes is such an important part of how we evaluate movies and how we decide if they're good or not, you know, good Rotten Tomato scores, bad Rotten Tomato scores are fine. No Rotten Tomato scores is, is a killer. Um, you know, we're hoping that people will discover some movies that we're talking about that maybe they missed. So for you, I mean, you have so many connections. I, I know from um, from following you on Twitter, um, from meeting you and doing some set visit stuff with you, like you have a lot of people in a lot of different places in the industry. Where are your discoveries coming from? What Where's word of mouth telling you which movies you need to keep an eye on on the horizon? Um, I mean, it just kind of comes from everywhere. Like you said, like either friends that, live in cooler cities than i do that have heard of better things this is a pretty cool Um, city this is a pretty cool city i mean this is a definitely a very cool city i won't lie um but yeah like through friends sometimes through researching other movies and then you know it'd be like a weird reference to something or a look up a, a random director um sometimes it's just even as simple as you know going through a streaming service like shutter um youtube also has a lot because i i have this playlist where it's like really big now i just kind of collect like old movie trailers and stuff like that and so i'm constantly like when i have some downtime at work or wherever i'm always just searching for like the weirdest shit and then i can just like add it to my list and somehow find it out in the other but that that's probably like a, a big chunk of where I find some stuff. That's really interesting. So where do you find the trailers then? Is it just mining YouTube or do they, do they pop up yeah. like recommendations? Some of them are recommendations because I'm, you know, constantly looking right. at that kind of stuff. And then sometimes it's just really digging in there or like I'll type in like a certain actor that I know is like known for like weirder movies or something. So yeah, it's just like a combination of all of that. That's a, no, that's a great idea. You should share that publicly. <laughs> that I will. I used to. Um, I just don't anymore. But <laughs> I will. <laughs> that feels like the kind of thing you need to have on in the background at a party, if nothing else. It's it, just that's like, what I would do mm-hmm, exactly. Mm-hmm. You know, because it was like trailers, and then it would be like commercials, and then like trailers on you know movies. Like it was just a whole bunch of fun stuff. So really cool stuff a lot of it's been deleted which is sad but um there's still i was gonna say copyright issues had to be that yeah like i'm constantly having to like delete shit i'm like i hope that wasn't good i don't remember what it was (laughs) random grindhouse exploitation movie number two 
right exactly like a lot of direct-to-video like trailers from other direct-to-videos so it's it's a lot of fun stuff you're giving me ideas for la now when i have parties (laughs) (laughs) it's a fun thing to have yeah well, let me ask you one more question that's kind of tied to what you're doing. And I mean, because you work in the game design industry, you have NDAs through the nose. I don't want to know anything yes. specific, but, you know, what are some things, you know, what are elements of horror films, either color or style or aesthetic or things that you find yourself drawing on for your own design work? Are there things from the genre mm-hmm. that you pick and you're like, you know, like, oh, this is cool. I want to remember how that looked or I want to remember what that character design was or something like that. Yeah, that's a good question. Um I'm obviously very visually stimulated. So I'm very influenced and inspired by color and lighting and like really beautiful, you know, production and set design. Um, A lot of that is very inspiring, you know, not only like in my artwork, but like how I dress, how I like decorate my places, how I approach the design process. Um, So a lot of that is very inspiring for me. And so I have a lot of, well, I will, since I just moved, have a lot of posters up because I just need to be constantly surrounded by it to be inspired. Is it more like darker? Is it more like yellow, colorful and stuff like that? Definitely. Yellow. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I'm a, I'm a bitch for neon. Let's, let's do it. <laughs> As you alluded to before with the VHS. <laughs> and exactly. your random hair color changes. Yes. This may, yes. <laughs> yep. 100%. Well, I can't help but feel like we uh, we sort of stumbled into just the right movie for you then because, um, yeah, I'm going down the checklist. Bright colors, you know, a little bit of Jeffrey Combs. This mm-hmm. this wasn't a bad pick. Mm-hmm. And I was going to say. Yeah, I've never heard of it. And I was going to say, too, re-watching it, I forgot how much this film owes to actual, like, video game uh, soundtrack design and whatnot. So I was like. Oh, my God. Yeah, so I was, like, re-watching going, like, I really did pick another winner for one of our guests. This is. Or maybe not winner, but, you know, something that should be in there. A a good match. A good match. We'll see if it actually does pan out. But I think this is the point where we might actually start getting to that. Right, Mr. Monagle? Yes, it is. Um, And I'll just say that Donato was actually texting me this afternoon. He was like, I think Melissa's going to really like this movie. I was like, why are you just watching it today? So it's (laughs) because I procrastinate, Matt, and I don't have a calendar. Deal with it. It's fine. Uh, Yeah, so if you haven't gleaned by all of our uh, very subtle contextual clues, uh, today's film is Motivational Growth. It is a 2013 film by a writer-director named Don Thacker, and it tells the story of uh, Ian Folliver, played by Adrian DiGiovanni, uh, a a shut-in, a man who has lived by himself in his dingy hotel room for, you know, months and months on end. The only solace he has in his life is Kent, his vintage television, who plays the best of 90s pop culture for him. One day after Kent goes on the fritz and explodes, uh, Ian decides that he's going to end his life. He goes into the bathroom, fills his tub with toxic chemicals to you know, shuffle off the mortal coil, realizes that the vent above the bathroom, above his uh, bathroom sink, is actually pulling that air out and slips and falls when trying to fix it, hits himself in the head. When he wakes up, he finds that there is now a sentient mold, I'm sorry, the mold, <laughs> on the floor next to the kitchen cabinet. Uh, voiced by Jeffrey Combs, who begins to tell him that there is a better way and that if he trusts the mold, the mold will look after him, Jack. There's a lot of interesting visual ideas here. There's a lot of, as um, we were talking about just a second ago, video game design elements that are going to be pulled into this conversation as well. But Melissa, you're our guest. Let's start thousand feet up. First impressions, what'd you think? I thought it was wild. I've never heard of it before. Um, And... 
I really, like I said, I, the video game music the whole, and like the little 8-bit interludes I thought were really rad. Um, it's definitely an interesting story. Haven't really seen anything like it. Um, it was, it was definitely worth a watch, I would say. Pretty, pretty crazy. So it, <laughs> pretty well, out there. A little hesitation <laughs> yeah. in that voice, I feel like. There, there are some points I was like, what am I watching? I mean, it's a fucking talking mold voiced by Jeffrey Combs who keeps referring to himself in the third person. <laughs> it was really funny. But that's the point. The mold knows. You just keep... The mold knows. You just follow the mold, Jack. <laughs> but yeah, I think... So Donato, why don't, why don't you... Because uh, th- there was a reason we picked this, not just because we thought Melissa would really like it, but this was actually one of the first movies we talked about for very cool reasons. Right. And this was one of the first movies that we realized we had seen together at a random New York City horror film festival that we did not know each other at. I think, what, 2013, you said about that time? So, I yeah, I was yeah, covering like for, we got this covered, you were covering for whoever. We were definitely sitting in the same theater because it was only like a one-night screening. And little lo and behold, did these two mats know they would soon meet and create a podcast together. <laughs> it was kismet. It, it was everything that we didn't know we needed. But yeah, so I mean, this is one of the reasons we started Certified Forgotten because it's one of those movies, motivational growth that we're talking about, that didn't really get a lot of traction after the festival. I reviewed it. I'm one of only three reviews on Rotten Tomatoes right now. And basically just kind of scuffled off to VOD, never really did anything big. I don't think it played any uh, theaters. And why? It's like, it's one of those things you just don't know why. Like even just a little indie release. And maybe that's because indie and VOD wasn't as big as it was back then. But I really dig motivational growth. Um, for the, the reasons that Melissa was saying before, the 8-bit interludes are so much fun. You get this like random video game that's created for the movie playing on an old-school cabinet television, and you have a full 8-bit soundtrack the entire time. It doesn't let up. Like I would buy this yeah. vinyl, and I would put it on at a party, and I would effing love the hell out of it. It's weird. It's weird as hell. It's a talking mold. You're like, hey, that's Jeffrey Combs. He's hilarious. He keeps repeating the mold over and over again. <laughs> but I I think there is also something to say about, you know, everyday life and stagnancy and how easy it is to just fall into this pattern of nothingness without any quote unquote motivation. So I think it does hit on some things that are larger than just aesthetic pleasure. And I would also say if you've seen the movie Relaxer, I forgot how much motivational growth is just like relaxer. And I think relaxer what came out this year even. So that's a, that would be a really interesting double bill for anyone listening. Yeah. Yeah. There's a lot of, so kind of the, the touch points that I was thinking, cause you know, I saw this in the movie theater with you, obviously the first thing that kind of came to mind or the first thing that I noticed is that that chip tune or that eight bit soundtrack, it kind of, it, it seems weird to say now that we've been living through 80s nostalgia for the past decade, but at the time I was like, Could, can they do this? Is this, can you have this as a soundtrack? Is anybody going to take it seriously? And, you know, it really, there there's this thread throughout the film um, because the film is, is sort of vaguely set in the 90s. There isn't really a, a well-defined era and the television shows and stuff that are playing on Kent, uh, the cabinet television, are not, real they're con- constructions that uh don thacker and his team made up which gives the whole thing sort of this like uh what is it uh is it mom and dad save the world where they get sucked into the television yeah i was i was confused that in the other one so um 
So yeah, there, there's definitely like, but kind of an early '90s vibe. But I think one of the things that struck me about it, um, even at the time, you know, was this idea that like we're doing '90s nostalgia. And in 2013 and 2012, when we saw this, I was like, "Oh, are are we there yet? Like, are we are we looking back on '90s culture already? Because like John Carpenter's still having his moment right now. Like, he's still the biggest thing in the world because everybody's looked back and been like, "Oh yeah, we did him dirty." And here comes this filmmaker along, you know, and you don't, you didn't see this so much. There were, you know, it was the beginning of people that were saying, like, oh, I'm a 90s kid, so I'm going to make 90s movies. Watching this, I was like, I kind of, like, this kind of works for me. Like, I remember some of this shit. I know it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and I was going to say, too, like, you know, now we have movies like Super Dark Times and all these coming-of-age stories. And little did we know we were only a few years away of hitting that, like, 90s uh, renaissance, I would say. We're getting back, and, like, that is nostalgia now. I mean... Yeah, the Stranger Things is always going to be the more popular of nostalgia because the 80s is just way easier to mimic. But we are hitting that sweet spot of the 90s that I think motivational growth does do a little bit earlier. And maybe it was a little bit before its time. So maybe now is even a better time to rediscover it for some people. Yeah, I've honestly had never heard of it until you guys brought it up. And I was like, first of all, ashamed that I didn't know a Jeffrey Combs flick, um, even though he's technically, I mean, his face isn't in it which is my favorite part, but his voice is, and he does a great job. Uh, but yeah, I never really heard of it until you guys pointed out. And I was like, what the fuck? How, conf- what is this? How confusing was it to hear his voice and try to mitigate the attraction of it to a <laughs> sentient piece of mold? <laughs> I mean, I could still suspend my belief enough. But <laughs> Brown bag of mold. But, um, but yeah, it was wild. And, you know, I will say that this movie was gross. I mean, it looked like it smelled constantly. I mean, th- it was almost painful to watch the screen sometimes because that guy's face was disgusting with like the zit thing. Oh. It was like shit in his beard and like those like body sores and just, it was gnarly. I love that. Like, I love that. Gross. That's the gross stuff you're pointing out when there are multiple <laughs> scenes of him just vomiting green bile. <laughs> Yeah, that too. But I mean, that that's more like fun, you know? Oh yeah, that's that's more fun gross when people are just vomiting <laughs> on each other. I mean, it's, it's, it's fun live great. This is like, I'm talking about the realistic gnarly shit, no, I, you know? I agree. The, the zit thing is the worst for me. Um, oh, so hard to watch. I mean, the effects in there, it's a good, I'm glad you brought it up because the effects are really fun. And I'm talking both the puppeteering of the, the mold itself and the gross out gags because there are multiple gross out gags in the sense that Ian projectile vomits some stuff, uh, you know, like black, yeah. just gross fluid spills out of his mouth Ugh. and it's, it's a sight. And the, the, the colors pop in this film in a way that you really see the viney greenness of the, <laughs> of what we're watching him vomit. But the puppeteering is really fun, I think. And the mold never moves. So the mold stays where it is against the bathroom cabinet uh, and the wall. Because obviously someone is behind it operating the mouth. And that's how Jeffrey Combs is talking. Number one, it's really well done. It's just matched up perfectly. Combs' voice works exactly how it should for the mold. And he has that kind of confidence and that kind of just like, you never, you know the mold is not helping this man. and the mold, Or maybe he is, but... You never think he is. And you always think the mold has some malicious motive. And that's that like mystery that Combs brings to it. But the puppeteering keeps it fun. It's like a rubberized version of the mold. And I, it could have failed so miserably if that was a weak-ass puppet. But I don't <laughs> think it is. 
It was fun. It just remind me of TerraVision a bit. Oh, fair, fair. Well, since you since you opened that up, let's talk a little bit about the production design because this is, I mean, this is not an expensive movie. I I, I had to dig into a couple of different podcasts to get the budget for it, but it's a two hundred forty nine thousand, um, wow. which is I think a, about a hundred thousand of that was actually for like marketing and um, press and industry type stuff as well. So. There's not there's not a lot of there's not a lot of money spent that's not reflected by the quality of what's going on in the screen. Um, talk to me about that apartment because that that apartment slash motel room the entire movie is anchored to you know Ian's experience in there, and you know I I'm fascinated by how vibrant that space is despite Melissa as you were saying like how disgusting and how dingy it is. <laughs> it's it's a really it's it's a unique it's a unique production design that and. I found my, like, even watching it now, I find it strangely endearing despite it all. It's a hard thing to articulate. I think it's just, in a way, it felt like, you know, oh, I've been there. I've been, you know, in that position of, like, you know, not having a job. And, man, we're kind of veering off the course of production design. But it felt very homey because I've definitely, I mean, not to that extreme, but to the point where it's like, yeah, I've got, like, a takeout container and, like, a lot of clothes and, and stuff like that. So it felt familiar um at times sans mold i was gonna say calling it homey is a little bit of a (laughs) if if this if this is how you lived for a little bit i do worry about you somewhat because (laughs) i mean not to this extreme no and and i think i do agree with you though i like where you just pulled like we've all kind of been there where like you lose motivation and this is the exaggeration on screen of ian sitting on his couch only moving so he doesn't get bed sores surrounded just by pizza boxes and Chinese takeout containers and piles of cereal bowls, just like lining everything. You can't see the floor. You can't see his table. It's covered in junk, but for some reason it's a really nice aesthetic touch. And I think that's a, I think it's because Ian doesn't really react to it. You have an actor that is so fully committed. I think, what did they say for 16 months, his character has been living in squalor and he's just accepted it. He lives yeah. amongst the trash and the trash becomes his mm-hmm. home and he loves it. Like that is just what it is. And he's just like, I can't care enough about this. So I'm just going to make the best of it. And it doesn't make it so gross in a weird way. It just makes it kind of the character of the film itself. Right. It is another character of the film. It and was it's... shocking when he cleaned it. I know. Yeah. It's like a whole new area. You're like, wait, where? this, this is the twist. I did not see. Like, what is coming from yeah. like what <laughs> well, i will say that i i did um i did find it kind of interesting with um regards to this space and, and how we get used to ian in, in that space i haven't seen a lot of movies where that use time-lapse photography where i'm like oh that was a good artistic choice most of the time it sort of stands out but pretty early in motivational growth you know we're treated to this prolonged period of time-lapse photography where we see him not really doing anything like sitting on the couch and then going, getting up every now and then going to the kitchen and then coming back and sitting on the couch. And there's something about that, like that use of this dynamic uh, type of um, filmmaking that's supposed to tell a story. It's supposed to take a lot of activity and condense it down into a short period of time. And the fact that Ian is doing no activity, but it's spreading that out over a long period of time. There, there are all these little, little touches that should be so 
annoying and over the top and flashy and, and you know showy that I'm like, oh, I actually really like the way that they did that. Another example of that's like the copious amounts of fourth wall breaking in a mm. lot of films that I'm like, oh God, all right, we get it. You're clever. And in this one, I was like, I, I, I kind of like that he stops and talks to the camera. Oh, because yeah, it, it felt right. Yeah, because there's no other characters for a long time. I, I mean, there are a few other characters in the film overall, but we are the only people that Ian has to talk to. And I, I feel like that's a representation of him talking in his mind because he's just secluded himself from society. He is sitting in his apartment. He doesn't want to leave it, and he won't leave it. It's not that he doesn't want to. He refuses to. So I see those scenes as him breaking the fourth wall. That's also like his sanity breaking. That's also himself breaking down to the point where he is just talking to himself like there's a studio audience watching him. And that is what so much isolation will do to you. I it did kind of feel a bit like a play. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You get it, the stage play atmosphere to it. Yeah. But I also think like playing off that a little bit. Well, I mean, did the, did the fourth wall breaking ever get too much for you guys? I'm just curious. Um, the first time it did, it kind of threw me off. So I was like, oh, okay, it's going to be this thing. Um, but then it just kind of became comforting. Like we're this voyeuristic, you know, other mold just kind of hanging out watching him converse with this other mold the mold the mold and the mold yeah and um honestly i got used to it after some time so and i think what sells it for me too is this movie is really cynical and this movie is really blunt about its view on life and its view on what we are doing and i even at the end i feel like there's a little bit to question I, like I, I get the whole arc that it's taking and i get you know what we see at the end which maybe we'll spoil later maybe we won't but i really like the way they sell the narcissism and sell the cynicism and i think that is why i allowed the fourth wall breaking that could happen so often because you get ian narrating one of his bowel movements and equating it to what life is and life is shit and every shit we pass is a metaphor for life and it for that worked for me. It, it worked in its simplistic, but still very on the nose and very witty delivery. It, that could have been a pretty crass joke, and it could have been a very one-off kind of statement on reality. And like, yeah, life is shit, man. But the way Ian delivers it is kind of like, nope. What I'm doing right now is shit itself. Blah, blah, blah. And I I love the way he can deliver that. Yeah, the monologues are really good. Yeah, and it, it's kind of a testament to, to, I mean, like, you know, we've all seen really low budget cinema and it's it, amazing to me that how much really hangs on the shoulders of your actors. If you have good actors, and I'm not talking about good actors by Hollywood standards, like if you can find people that are talented actors, regardless of, of where they come from and regardless of experience level, they will give you something that is so much better than all the, the combination of the various pieces. Mm-hmm. And I think one thing that's really impressive about this movie is like, yes, you know, I, I was reading and listening to some of the director talking about it, you know, and and there's a good anecdote uh, in one of the podcast interviews he did is where he did the auditions for this in a public library. He rented out one of the little rooms in a public library because he knew that they weren't going to have enough of money to be precious. So his thing was like, if you can't do weird noises and scream in a library, knowing there's a room full of kids on the other side of the wall, we probably can't work with you. Um, Mm, That's cool. But, that's that's something that I, I actually I think is really great um, about Adrian Di Giovanni is like this guy is good and he's not good just by like oh he's good by two hundred fifty thousand dollars standards he's good by any standards he takes this character and he really makes him somebody who's sympathetic despite <laughs> any reason that he should be 
and he makes those monologues which are so at times like so you know tarantino light mm-hmm. like you know frustrating film school stuff and i'm like oh i i i can sink my teeth into this this is good writing right yeah i did think it was exceptionally well written i was surprised and that's the funny thing about like looking at a film that has three reviews on rotten tomatoes and we're surprised by the fact that it actually has quality and we're surprised by the fact that it has all these really solid filmmaking. Sad. Yeah, exactly. And that's what I like. It's that sad nature of even just today. I, you know, I tweeted something just about Rotten Tomatoes. Like, hey, just curious, like, how do films get a Rotten Tomatoes page? Because I went to log a bunch of reviews and the films don't even have Rotten Tomatoes pages. And I got that one comment from, you know, from a friend. So like, it's not something that I took offense to, but it's like, oh, but like, you know, Rotten Tomatoes, is a bane on cinematic culture and it means nothing to a film's quality. But on the other hand, I'm like counterpoint what Rotten Tomatoes is. We have to acknowledge it's a very significant tool that people use today. And that's how they judge if a movie is good or not. So whether we, whether we like the system or not, it's the system we're in. And the fact that an indie like this is on Rotten Tomatoes and only has X amount of reviews, it's immediately written off as like, I shouldn't watch this. It only has three reviews. Why would I even watch this? Even worse if it isn't, doesn't even have a page. So like, it's just so interesting to talk about this stuff in the context of Rotten Tomatoes and saying like, yeah, like I was surprised. Like it was actually well-written and I was surprised it was actually well-acted. It's very sad. Yeah, it is. <laughs> it's funny. It's funny you say that too, because I feel like Rotten Tomatoes is kind of like that shared language that people that are, you know, extreme cinephiles versus someone that only sees Marvel movies, you know, Um, Not that there's anything wrong with that, but people that are maybe not as obsessed with movies kind of can share that. They can be like, oh, well, you know, I heard Us had, you know, this score on Rotten Tomatoes. And like, it's like we both can want to see a movie based on this fact on a website. Exactly. Yeah. And I mean, something like Midsommar, I think, on Rotten Tomatoes, you know, that's, I would qualify that as an indie film. And for some reason, you know, when it gets a 91% on Rotten Tomatoes and enough of us review it, then all of a sudden it's the it's in the public talk. So, you know, mm-hmm. when something like motivational growth doesn't really get the hype, it doesn't get enough reviews to be certified anything, yeah, it gets forgotten. And it's just so sad. But yeah, sorry, I didn't want to like derail the conversation just talking about the grander scheme of Rotten Tomatoes. But I, I think motivational growth is a really good example of a very solid product being misrepresented by the amount of reviews it actually has. And I, I, Absolutely. I think that'll go right back into the performance we were talking about. And I think Ian's, I, my favorite monologue that Ian has is when he's talking while putting all the chemicals in the bathtub and basically, you know, trigger warning, you know, he's about to commit suicide, but he keeps making these quips like, yeah, I might be dead, but I'll have a really clean bathroom. And like, just stuff like that, just acknowledging the fact of how, okay he is with the scenario and how complacent he's become with life and life meaning nothing and it's so tragic and it's also so funny and at that point i was like yeah this is a really great effing performance i mean i think yeah, it's a solid a... tight little film sorry to mean it no you're good no no you're good i think that there's um you know i think there's a there's a lot of in both performances honestly but i i want to ask um, since we're talking about budget and I, you know, I, slight detour for me, like I always feel bad, right? Part of the thing about these movies is that you end up anchoring the conversation around budget and available talent. So it's not like, Oh, this is a really good movie. But you're like, Oh, it's a good movie for 250,000 or like, Oh, it's really good for the fact they don't have any names. Um, 
that's part of it too. I feel bad. I'm sorry. This is a this is a fun little movie, regardless of any kind of qualifiers you want to hang on it. But you know, Melissa, as our resident Jeffrey Combs expert, how much does having um, a recognizable voice like his, um, and specifically his, add to the film? Because this is something you see, especially a lot of micro budget films that you know can afford a day or two of an actor. And, and in voice work, it's a little different because you're getting somebody for the entire movie, even if they're only putting a day or two in. But like, what is what is that what is that degree of recognition, that degree of familiarity, add to something like this? Could this have worked if it was like the second unit director that provided the voice of the mold? It's a very good question. I mean, for me, that was a huge draw because I'm a really big fan of his. And I think having like a recognizable actor play kind of like a character role um, helps, especially if it's not something that's not really well known and. You know, I didn't really hear a lot about it. Um, it was definitely a big draw for me, and I think Combs killed it. I don't know if it would have been as funny without him, um, because you can kind of also imagine what he would look like saying some of this stuff. Um, that's a good question. I think it helps. But what at what point does it become unhelping when you see the hundredth Danny Trejo direct to DVD movie. Not that I have anything against. I mean, I think it has to be a certain type of actor. You know, if it's someone like that, it's very prolific and like a million little cameos and every little film that it's, it kind of loses the appeal, but I don't feel like Combs does as much as, you know, Danny Trejo. (laughs) So it it feels a little bit more special. No, and I will a hundred percent agree with you. And I will, 100% 100% agree with the fact that you can picture Jeffrey Crone saying these lines and even like there's one point where he's just bubbling his mouth he's going like ba-dum, 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 ba-dum. and right. <laughs> and the mold is doing that with its mouth too and it just looks like Combs like you can see it in the face you can see it in the performance and it's such a match yeah I think Jeffrey Combs is perfect as the mold and just the way he says stuff like the mole knows Jack and it's like well my name is not Jack and it's just like the mold <laughs> it's just so <laughs> mysterious and it's so jeffrey combs and it's just so weird and that's combs 100 percent. obviously his backlog mm-hmm. is the weirdest shit you can imagine from the most mundane mm-hmm. to something like he was in like a truth or dare movie one time and it's still just so inarguably weirdly combs but um melissa where does where does this rank on the scale of jeffrey combs film so where, where would you put his performance in motivational growth I mean, I think it was great. He was hilarious. However, I didn't get to see his face, so it can't be in the top three. Understandable. All right. Oh. Under- I, I get that. I, it, I can see that. I feel like that's the sort of thing that if they'd had you in their focus group, they would have cleared that up right away. That's that's just an unforgivable It's problem. true. Yeah. Can, can you imagine a version well, of this movie where they just painted Jeffrey Combs' face green and just put him in the face <laughs> of the Oh, my the God. Mouth? I would be so on board. Are you kidding? I would love it. <laughs> I would be so about it. It's like a, an old 19, or not old, but 1950s sci-fi horror film, like the original thing that just has like a, him in a green suit. Yep. I'm the mold. <laughs> exactly. Yes. That would be phenomenal. Or that, what was it? Uh, Dark Star, where it's literally just a beach ball as the alien with like a head on it. Like, yeah, it's just Jeffrey Combs in a beach ball. That That is. <laughs> I'd be into it. All right. We need to email Don Thacker. Is that, or Thacker? What's his name? Yeah. Whoever made this movie. I apologize if I just said your name wrong, Mr. Yes. Don Thacker. It's- I was right. Good. You're correct. I was, I'm was. i talking in circles right now. Uh, talk to me, the two of you, because I'm curious what you thought um, about kind of the, the stuff that appears on Kent, the television shows, mm. the interstitial 8-bit stuff, the video game 
um, and the video game shots that, that they reference. You know, does this, as with everything, this movie is such a push-pull between like, oh, that's really crazy and like, oh, is that too crazy? So does the does the cop show about the alien that crash landed on Earth, does the jazzercise video, does the, um, you know, urban yoga and all the various, the, the, the different television shows and video games that they're showing, does it make the movie better? Does it make the movie worse? Could they have skimped on that a little bit? What do you think? Um, I liked the idea. I'm not sure if I was in love with the execution. It felt a little forced to me, um, a little gimmicky, but I mean, I liked the idea and I know it was like all the commercials that they made as opposed to, you know, real ones they found. Um, I don't know. I think it just kind of, it didn't hit the mark a hundred percent. Yeah. I think a few were kind of played out. There are some scenes with like the Miami vice kind of dudes, where it's funny, yeah. but like they keep going on and monologuing about being bros and the hot babes are and like, that's funny. And I get that. I really like the, the yoga one though. It was like deaf yoga. And it's just like, you yeah. know, she's like, just forget about that shit. Yeah. Just let all that go. Like let all that pressure go away and fuck that shit. And like, I don't know. I really attuned to that as you watch Ian watching this from his couch, obviously not exercising, but still being able to connect with like, all right, maybe I can let this stress go. And whether he does or not, but I, I thought that was a funny play on a regular yoga, uh, regular yoga thing you'd watch on TV. Also, again, the 8-bit. The 8-bit stuff looks so it good. It was great, 100%. I, well, I think the what they create is something called like Star Maker or Star Breaker or something like that. And it's basically like getting put into a really old school kind of like RPG game, it looks like. Um, like, a, like a fantasy RPG, I forget what I'm trying to equate it to like a final fantasy even or something like that. But Trigger. yeah, exactly. And I, why am I saying this when this is like your field of expertise, <laughs> but yeah, I really like the eight bit stuff. I could have watched so much if it was just eight bit stuff on Kent. And also was I correct in hearing that it's a Commodore set? Yes. In six, set, yeah. I was going to say set in 1964. So yes. literally a Commodore 64. <laughs> mm-hmm. Okay. I, I, well, I do know some. I wrote that down. <laughs> I, I mean, yeah, me, I did. I was like, Commodore 64, is that a reference to? Okay. So again, it, this movie owes so much to video game culture. And I think that does play into the pop culture appetite that this film has and how Ian loses himself, it, physically loses himself in these shows that he's watching and they take over his life. And it's so subtle, though. Like, you wouldn't pick up on the video game stuff as it's happening, but even just having the soundtrack scoring it all, it kind of like, oh, I get it. I get it. I get it now. Yeah, I loved it. The 8-bit stuff was probably my favorite little parts of everything. Um, I mean, it was just so surprising because at first you heard the TV going out and then you heard the soundtrack with the 8-bit and I'm like, oh, this rules. And then it actually went into an 8-bit segment. I'm like, okay, I'm on board. Yeah, there's two segments. I, like, I think there's even two where you get... Yeah, there's two. Yeah, you get Ian talking to the mold, but you're able to do so much more of that animation, you know? the actor playing Ian is already so emotive and that's such an advantage to the film. But then you go into the 8-bit mode and you just get the wild exaggerations of personality that you can't do in real life. So I, that was a really nice touch. I agree with that 100%. So are, are you guys going to be very excited then when I tell you that the uh, they're actually making a video game based on the video game that's in Motivation Amazing. Growth? Amazing. That is so cool. Yeah, so uh, some of the that backstory for Don sounds... Thacker and company is um, they have a uh, they have a design company. They do commercials, they do films, they do video games, they do like 
um, interstitials for video games and things of that nature. And so they successfully crowdfunded a few years ago and then got locked down in an ugly lawsuit, which we do not need to go into here. <laughs> um, the, um, the actual, I think it's like phase or something. I can't remember what it is. Um, but yes, they, they, they have a Twitter account and a Facebook set up for that. And they've actually posted a couple times in the last month with some early gameplay footage and things of that nature, but it's exactly what you'd think. It's like a weird mixture of a first person shooter and a side scroller and it's all eight bit style and it looks weird and amazing. Oh, I'm so on board. I need it. That's that's awesome. I, I'm glad that something so weird can come from such a weird movie. Like, it's such a weird tangent to be like, no, he didn't do any movies after Motivational Growth. He started doing the 8-bit video game in there. And it's like, yeah, that kind of makes sense. That's rad. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's like that just makes trajectory sense. I want to ask, um, Melissa, since you're, since you're a video game designer, you might have some thoughts on this. You know, it's interesting that he's watching this video game being played. And some of them are commercials, but there's also times where he's watching the gameplay footage, which makes motivational growth sort of like a pre-peak uh, look at, you know, I, I think things like Twitch, like he's watching people play video games. Mm-hmm. He's not actually engaged with them. You know, what do you think of that that kind of interplay, the, the passive um, observance of video games? Because for a long time, I think if you thought about streaming, you would think of somebody like Ian Follower. You're like, oh, like this person, he's not even playing. He's like watching at home. What a loser. And now it's, you know, right. it's a billion dollar, multi-billion dollar it, industry. It is. And actually my best friend just got a job at Twitch and she's starting on Monday. So very cool. Yeah. It's, it's very much been the topic of our discussions lately. Um, I mean, it's actually been around for a long time and people used to stream themselves playing on YouTube, you know, it was like walkthroughs or like, you know, tips and tricks and stuff like that. And, um, you know, they'd have the game and they'd have like a, their little face, like, in the corner or whatever so it's been happening for a long time and i think like ever since you know twitch started that um you know now it's just become a thing where you can sell yourself as a gamer and a personality you know and a way to to make some money because a lot of people do um, just playing. I, I think it's really interesting. I've never really been a hundred percent into it because when I see someone play, it just makes me want to play instead of watching them play. So it's hard for me to get really into it, but it's, it's helpful when you're like, you know, want to check out a game or, you know, you need help when you're like stuck and you want to see how someone else approaches it, if they have any tips while they're playing along. So it's, it's a very interesting little subgenre within the game community. Yeah, it's motivational growth at times really feels like it's it's kind of a film about streaming because he does break the fourth wall. He does turn and talk to the camera. Mm-hmm. They're all you do watch him play, but then you have these picture in picture type things where you get to watch what he's watching while he's watching. Uh it I, I feel like you know, Donato and I have talked about this a little bit before, but I, I'm always curious, like whenever I watch a, a horror movie, I'm like, what's the academic paper about this going to be? Like, what is the dissertation on this film look like? And I feel like the dissertation on motivational growth is, is tied to second screens and like streaming culture in general. Absolutely. I can see that a hundred percent. Yeah. I mean, we're watching somebody else live their life and that, like you said before, it, this feels like a stage play in that there's no screen. We're almost there basically. We're watching Ian. Ian's talking to us. We're in the room with him. And yeah, mm-hmm. I, I, that's a, another brilliant observation, Mr. Mr. Monagle, and your academic side. Um, because the street <laughs> stuff didn't even occur to me until you said that. It's an equal, it, it's, parallel. Yeah, it's, it's a perfect cool. parallel in the sense that we're watching all of this stuff happen to Ian. 
and he's still connecting with us and keeping us involved and he's keeping us in the film itself not just as a you know bystander we're a participant and that's such an interesting thought with the streaming and motivational growth because i think that is an academic paper that should be written hint hint matt <laughs> no that's why i have this podcast i just get to say my smart shit on here i don't have to actually write it down anymore. let somebody else write it yeah exactly for the, for the idea let somebody else do it exactly give them ideas yeah all right, so we talk, we've talked about the television stuff. Um, we've talked uh, about the performances. I mean, Donato, you've been hitting kind of the depth of this a couple of different times. So there there is also a read of this film that is sort of like a Greek tragedy and like, you know, Seven Circles of Hell and Hades-ish. You know, what what do we think of the smarter side of this movie, the, the like the, the afterlife allegory that this film is kind of going for? So I, I think what I'm going to say is, are we allowed to talk about the final frames and what we see? Right. Uh, we are allowed to talk about the final frames because anybody who, at the 50 minute mark, anybody that wants to not be spoiled by motivational growth is going to right. turn it off. The ones that are still listening right now would love to hear what Matt Donato has to well, say. Well, I mean, maybe they don't and maybe they're just going to stick with it anyway, but I am going to say that I have five more seconds to kill before it hits 50 minutes and then I'll get to the spoilers. <laughs> so... Well, we have the whole, we have the oh, theme boop, song boop, boop. too that okay. goes in beforehand. Good. So, like, yeah. We're so, fine. the ending shot is we see that Ian is a corpse, or not even a corpse, a decomposed, rotting, rotting. fleshy. And this goes right back to Melissa, what you said before that this movie is gross. This effect is so cool, just seeing his skeleton and all the gunk, the street trash esque gunk that has fallen off of him. So basically, it's suggesting that. Everything we've been seeing Ian do was the afterlife. The mold was never real. Obviously, it's talking mold. It was all in his quote-unquote head. And it's kind of like a purgatory. It's kind of like almost he's being he's okay. being punished in a way. Because I know this is a redemptive arc for him, technically, in whatever state of being he is in. But the redemption happens after he's dead, so it's too little too late. So for me, the reading is... Don't waste your time. Life is precious. And I get that all that. <laughs> but man, this movie is so fucking mean before it gets there. Like Ian is just, Ooh. he's given up on life and he's given up on everything. He's left everything about his job and he doesn't talk to girls. He looks at them through peepholes. And there's some problematic shit in this movie too. Don't get me wrong. Yes. There is some, <laughs> yeah, the whole relationship between Ian and one of the other characters that comes in and out, this uh, woman, Layla, who's basically his crush and she just lives down the hall basically. And Ian peers at her through the door and just sees her walking by. And that's how he interacts with her and their relationship blossoms because she comes over and is like, Oh, Hey door stalker. I see you through the people. Now I'm going to be your friend. Now I'm going to make out with you. And it's like, it's such a jump. But then again, if we look at this in the context of a purgatory or an afterlife, this is Ian's fantasy. You know, Ian never did the things he should have done. So I think it does get away with that kind of relationship and allowing the pervy voyeur to get the girl in that, again, it's torture. It's not actually him getting the girl. He is dead. He never got the girl. It never happened. So that, it's just such a bizarre film to watch because you're watching Redemption and you're watching somebody become a better person and the mold is quote unquote helping him. But then it just ends on that bleakness of like, yeah, by the way, he's fucking dead, though. Yeah. Sorry. I kind of figured it was going to be some kind of like hallucination or dream. Like ever since we first see that 
little glimpse of the corpse before the mold like buzzes it yeah. out of the picture. Um, you know, and the girl Leia or whatever, um, that situation was very weird. I will admit. And, but honestly, like the least believable part was the fact that he threw up green slime on her and she didn't move. She was like, that's okay. Where's your bathroom? And that's, so funny too because she's calling him jack in numerous times at that point which we know is the molds yeah. thing the molds thing is hey jack and he goes i'm ian and the mold just calls everyone jack so you do get his quote-unquote you know crush calling him jack in little spurts but again it's never really stated that the mold was controlling her or the mold was had her in his grasp because she gets eaten by the mold <laughs> which is a great yeah. scene i actually love that shot when she just gets yanked the mold just like nope you yeah. enough of that and just yanks her out and, eats her. <laughs> and i think it's probably worth um commenting on here too that you know i i think it, i remember we all remember because we were all either writing or aspiring writers at that point like when this movie came out was kind of when there was that huge backlash against the idea of the manic pixie dream girl oh you know mm-hmm. like the like the girl that exists primarily as a fantasy of the sad male character. And it's it's hard not to watch motivational growth and be like, I see what you're doing. Like, I see the send up that this is because this is like that character, you know, uh, like snorting bath salts or something. It is it is that character, that degree of fantasy turned up to like a little bit of 11 for exactly the point that you said, Melissa, with like all the vomit and stuff on it. You know, it, it's this it's not a movie like it would be really interesting to look at this in connection to something like Elizabeth Town and see what this crazy movie like the mold movie has to say what that, you know, mainstream uh, quote unquote successful film had to say and like see how close those two character portrayals really are. Right. Yeah. And she's like, you're a mystery. I love that. You know, it's, it's just projection. Exactly. And again, though, it's what, what Ian wants to hear. And that's that's what you keep exactly. getting. Exactly. What the mold thinks that you know. Yep, even deeper than that, exactly. The mold is, oh, isn't that weird that he's got a crush on? What yeah. Ian thinks the mold thinks that Ian wants to There hear. are so many layers to this. Oh my God, that's actually a good point. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, it's just so, even the stuff with, um, what's the landlord's name? Ox? Yeah. Ox, the box. Exactly, Ox, the box. He is just a hard ass who breaks chimpanzee arms and, talks about setting churches on fire with the broom handle in the door so no one can get out. So he's just the hard-nosed son of a bitch of the film. And some of his language is, again, it was 2012. It was before some type of, you know, backlash in popular culture. So it, it was interesting to hear that stuff just used so prevalently. But I, again, I think it all works in the sense that it's all in Ian's mind. It's all, well, not even mind because he's dead. So it's all in this fantasy world where it's what Ian should have done. And again, I think that's the one saving grace because if we had that redemptive arc at the end where he gets away with everything and he is, you know, the white male hero that I am bad, but now I'm good. So don't worry about me. You know, I can just stumble my way up and be just a normal guy now. Yeah, that would be a different movie, but we see his corpse. We see that, yeah, this son of a bitch literally died after not leaving his apartment for 16 months and he lived a sad, sad life and you shouldn't do that. So I think that's the only saving grace that comes out of the fact that there was some problematic stuff, but it's problematic for a reason and in the parameters of the film. Yeah. And I think this was definitely before, you know, mental illness became a more public 
forum for discussion because a lot of people could have been like he's depressed and you don't just get over yeah. things that was, you know? that was a so. big read for me you know as he's watching the tv and the tv is talking to him and that that was a, a cool device that they do you know all the tv shows are talking to ian and basically what they're saying on screen is the motivation for him to be better and yeah it's basically saying hey you're sad just be happy just go clean some things trim your beard it's basically take a shower belittling that thing but you know we have friends that you know even today tweet something like hey i lost a bunch of weight and i'm feeling really good about myself but wow depression still sucks and i can't shake it like it's just that thing where it's not as easy as that and yeah that is a read right. that also exists that I think some people are going to struggle with because it's such a prominent read mm-hmm. until you get to the end and realize he's dead. <laughs> <laughs> the whole time he yep. did kill himself. <laughs> I, oh my God. And that was such a good monologue too. Literally talking about failure and being like, you know what? Do you know how people fail their dr- fail at anything every day and they die? You fail at driving a car, you die. You fail at eating sushi the, r- the wrong way, you die. Yep. And then like, you see die. Ian just looking at the camera like, I'm the guy that fucked up killing himself. What do I get? I don't even die. Right. <laughs> but but he, he did. Good for you, Ian. So is is that a good thing, I guess? Success? Is that success town? As yeah, the I, I think that's a success story in motivational growth, like, if there ever was one. So I have two final questions um, for both of you then um, to wrap up our conversation with sort of, with motivational growth one how many of the molds um whatever what are the words neologians or whatever they're called little turns of phrase are you going to start incorporating into your everyday I mean, language a lot. definitely the mold, mold knows jack it's kind of like that's gonna like the logs know the mold now knows it's gonna be the weirdest thing for you to text with your friend somebody <laughs> you know reaches out to you and they're like i'm having a bad night and you're like the mold knows oh i so wish i had seen this before i met jeffrey combs like two months ago because I might have said something or had him draw like a And he note. probably would have went nuts because who, would who have. was talking to Jeffrey Combs about motivational growth these days? Besides me, if I corner him at uh, a party. Major regret. Well, I'm going to say probably at the next convention, it, Melissa K. Melissa K. will be talking to Jeffrey Combs about this movie. Yes, I will. <laughs> All right. That was question number one. Question number two. We actually ended this conversation in, in a pretty serious place, which I love because these movies – the conversations we have about these films take us to unexpected ways. So we've got we've got vomiting, we've got talking molds, we've also got depression, we've got you know um, purgatorial commentary. There's a lot going into this movie. It's amazing how a film from only seven years ago can already feel really dated in some interesting ways. But as a general rule of thumb, we're trying to figure out if movies should remain that were forgotten should remain forgotten. Are you saying motivational growth should be? refound rediscovered by audiences yes yeah i'm gonna stick by my fresh tomato on rotten tomatoes of three and aaron peterson could go fuck himself for his rotten one. <laughs> oh, you've been called out on certified forgotten um i don't even believe that my review i did write a review i don't believe my site was rotten tomatoes approved so i'm just in the ether somewhere and uh, as I as I find myself, I will say I also think motivational growth should be discovered. It's it's a weird movie. It's the kind of thing. It should be a midnighter for a lot of different reasons. It won't probably. It's too good to be bad. Um, so it right. loses you know the opportunity to be like a future Joe Bob Briggs movie on Shutter. But 
it's it's something that I could I the people that find this movie are going to be obsessed with it. Yeah, and I mean, my last thing I will repeat: if you liked Relaxer, you're probably going to like Motivational Growth. And I know that Relaxer was in a lot of conversations this year. So yeah, Relaxer fans, go uh, go find Motivational Growth. <laughs> also, Brain Damage fans, because I was getting that. Oh, there you go. Too. All right. Um, for people that want to learn the, about the things that you know about design, about film, about color, Melissa, what's a good play for people to reach out to on social media, connect with you and see what you're up to? Yeah, I am Mecca Melissa pretty much everywhere that you can social media. So really easy. Just Mecca, like M-E-C-H-A and then Melissa. Donato, people want to learn more about Demon Wind. Where do they go? Uh, for all Demon Wind commentaries, you can follow me at Donato Bomb on Twitter, Instagram, and Letterboxd. Or you can follow my writing on Slash Film, Flickering Myth, We Got This Covered, and many other websites around the interwebs. As for me, you can find my writing about horror and lots of board games recently, which I'm very excited about, um, at Labsplice, L-A-B-S-P-L-I-C-E on Twitter. Uh, that's probably the best place to go. I put everything that's relevant there. Uh, any last thoughts, any, 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 uh, shout outs we want to give to Jeffrey Combs or Don Thacker or anybody else before we wrap this up? The mold knows. <laughs> the mold knows. <laughs> and done. <laughs>